This is a very short introduction to a rather long conversation I had, so you can figure out whether it could be interesting for you or not. I had this conversation with Stash. Stash is the host of the podcast Education Bookcast, in which he's covered, I think by now, about 80 books about education, all trying to figure out what is learning, what is education, and how can we use cognitive science to understand education more thoroughly, and thus see how can we improve education settings and make them better. I really like his, uh, his podcast. It's incredibly thorough. I recommend it. And I had a conversation with him where we dove into one topic he's covered quite in depth in his last few episodes, which is the um, expanded cognitive model of the mind that he's taken from the book The Chimp Paradox. I, guess quite a few of you have heard of Jim Paradox and really trying to dive into that model from a more cognitive science perspective and really trying to understand these three uh, aspects of the human mind that are proposed in that model, the human, the chimp and the computer and trying to compare it to other cognitive um, concepts like the adaptive unconscious how does the human relate to consciousness? Is the human more than just thinking? We really cover quite a lot of uh, topics. We're not super structured because it was a conversation of us trying to understand this model more thoroughly. But um, we really dive into this discussion of the unconscious, of emotions and the nervous system in the thinking process, which we try to equate to the chimp and then ending with an exploration of what is consciousness actually? What does it mean to have conscious thought? And is there more to consciousness than just conscious thought? Those are roughly the ideas we cover in a non-linear fashion. I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, uh, so so what, what should we, what do you want to talk about today? Because we, uh, uh, I know we can, we can go quite, we can sort of end up yeah. talking about lots of things, but if we have a topic in mind, Keep, I would I would really love to to explore this chimp paradox model. Mm. And and I agree with you on the fact that the chimp paradox is a very bad top uh, name for this thing, but the chimp yeah. model. Um yeah. because I'm because I'm curious about it. I have a few different questions about it. So sure. Question number 1 and it would be so it seems that this model is very closely related to basic cognitive science models of conscious unconscious with uh -huh. then the question of how does the unconscious work and mm -hmm. um but um but it adds this chimp mm -hmm. and i still don't fully get that chimp like on on one experiential level i can relate to it and in another mm -hmm. way i have so many questions of isn't a lot of what he ascribes to the chimp and how the chimp may react in different situations actually that the computer is activating it and mm -hmm. then the chimp gets emotional um, mm -hmm. isn't um, where is the the line between chimp and computer because in most cognitive science perspectives I've seen also if if it's more of a cognitive science perspective on for instance therapy it's it's like chimp and computer as he terms them are fused into one and mm -hmm. um, where is the where is the distinction 
like where does computer start where does chimp start where do both end and i'm and i'm just not clear on that yet and i would like to be um so that's one question i have to really understand this chimp and where the fuck does he get that from just saying like whoop that's what we have Badoom. so so okay. that's th those are questions i have um i have a few can i start from can we start from there before you yeah. ask more questions yeah let's, let's so do that. Because you have notes, right? You have these questions written down. I have these questions written down. Okay, so we'll start with, with that. So um, uh, can I ask first if you've got, I assume for the purposes of the recording that we're not going to need to describe the chip model from scratch. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, okay. So it's like, seeing that whoever's, whoever's looking at this in the future knows at least but, but basic we give idea like of what it is. Two or three minute thing of this okay. chip model. So, Sure. Okay. So, so in, in brief, um, the chimp model is, this is actually something I wanted to, I wanted to highlight elements of, of this introduction that I'm going to give now in what, in, in order to respond to what you were saying, but the chimp model is a, uh, a model of the thinking mind or the, or it's a model of the mind, but specifically of the parts that are involved in thought, because there are parts of your, at least your brain, if you don't want to call it your mind, that are involved in uh, things like controlling your heartbeat or your immune system. So we're not, in, not talking about that. We're talking about the bits that are involved in your thinking. Um, and it splits it into three parts. Uh, the names of the parts are human, chimp, and computer. Uh, the chimp is the emotional center. The computer is basically automatic reactions that have been learned over time. And the human is the slow uh conscious processing basically um so when i think about this i usually map these onto working memory and long-term memory as being working memory being the human and long-term memory being the computer and the chimp being an emotional center that's not not talked about when people talk about usually working memory and long-term memory because usually people are just talking about the interaction of those two uh, at least in the in the cognitive science that i've read but the, the chimp then being a third element, the emotional center. So um, uh, the computer, when you're born, is close to, close to blank, doesn't have very much in it at all. And then things are put into the computer from the human or from the chimp. So that partly is an answer to one of the questions you were asking, that, um, uh, sometimes, that basically when you do an action, when you repeatedly do an action, or have a, a thought or repeatedly have a thought, then it gets more and more ingrained in your long-term memory, which means it's more and more ingrained in your computer, which means it's more likely to be brought by your computer as a suggestion. Okay, this is a bit roundabout. But the way that it operates is basically uh, the chimp and the computer provide suggestions to the human, and the human can stop them. Um, but, um, but if it doesn't stop them, then, they, then actually the entire, your, your actual behavior and thinking can be entirely under the control of, of one of these other two systems. So your, your thinking and behavior can be like entirely under control of the chimp, or it could be entirely under the control of the computer. Um, apparently it can be entirely under the control of the human, but I think he also says that. But usually they're working in concert. So, and, um, so, yeah. so already that, that is already interesting because I think that's already a few assumptions in there that, that I really want to look at so um, sure. 
the distinction of it's a model of the thinking mind. Mm -hmm. I get that. And at the same time, a lot of the examples he uses in his book are about actions. And he, yeah. he describes them from the level of, oh, you think to yourself, like you're driving in the car, somebody cuts you off. Um, your rational part is saying, oh, I don't have to get angry, but you get angry. And it actually yeah. takes action. So, um, mm. so I, I don't think it's just the thinking mind, but it's also how, how this translates into action. So especially if we have the chimp in there, I would say that just the thinking mind is too narrow. And especially if we also look at like, and this would be another understanding of how to understand the computer um, mm -hmm. of how much power does the computer actually have? This is one of the things you bring up in your what is learning episode that the computer actually um, impacts, if not on one level, actually to some degree determines um, perception because then suddenly we have the computer determining perception which impacts the chimp and the human so mm. we get into a much more complex system there but i I, mm. I would just like to have this is it just thinking or is it also action and um yeah how are they actually related uh so uh yeah that's a good point um i would think of this as a chain uh i would think of this as like a sort of chain of command if you like um, that what's so if we take the driving in the car example so you're driving the car something happens to annoy you like someone cuts you up someone drives in front of you and um, and then you know there's this interaction between the human and the chimp at that point um, and, let, me, uh, let me try one thing real quick see if we can if we can do this let's see if it does this it should oh there we go so oh. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, you were just talking about action. So I, I would think of it this way that like, suppose that the, the chimp is, is like kind of um, fully activated, right? Um, meaning the chimp is basically sort of in control, let's say at that moment, then the chimp will, um, will sort of will sort of decide that actions should happen. Uh, so now there are other parts of your, there are other parts that obviously like your, your body is a part of you, <laughs> but like that, that's controlled through the, you know, the motor centers of your, your brain. And I believe kind of what would happen is your chimp would like send commands to like the motor section of your brain to do something. And then that thing would happen through your body. So like it would kind of, it's like your chimp is giving commands to the parts of your brain that can control your, your body. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and then also there is a, there is a reciprocal thing where, you know, what your body does is something that you are aware of and that you sense. So like, there's a kind of feedback system, your body does something, you adopt a posture or you make a movement and then that feeds back into your perception. Um, and then it, it goes through an interpretation process itself. So, you know, this is, this is, this is well known through stuff like on the one hand through stuff like power posing, which became popular not too long ago. Uh, or things like studies around if you start to do the actions and motions of certain kinds of belief, like of prayer, then you're more likely to have religious beliefs. Like if you, if you adopt a prayer posture, you're more likely to express positive, uh, like express that you, that you, 
for example, you have religious beliefs, you're less likely to express the same person is less likely to express that if they're not in the posture of of, uh, of prayer for whatever you know be different posture for different religions. And and I, and I and I get that. So basically, the model is there is this I'm being cut off that mm -hmm. activates the chimp mm -hmm. emotion emotion, and the chimp goes fuck you. I'm gonna show you. Mm -hmm. Which then again sending information to the body, to the uh, to the um, movement centers, all of that. Like mm -hmm. that, that one makes sense to me. Also, what mm -hmm. you say about the the postures, like if I do something, if I bring my body into a certain posture, mm -hmm. that will, for instance, impact the chimp again. So I imagine, so the body could probably be uh, taken as part of the computer in this model to some degree. Um, it's it, it's it will be one of, one of your senses is one of your because you got like taste smell touch sight and hearing, but you've also got like uh, I think it's called proprioception, which is like yeah. awareness of where your body is. So that's just going to be like another one of your senses that's going to come back, as well as like you're going to have an interpretation process of something like why am I in this pose right now, yeah. uh, that so, kind of thing. So I have a few points to that so number one when i the immediate point i have about power poses is that there have mm -hmm. been really interesting studies done that show that power poses are not just a physical thing but actually there have been studies comparing americans to asians where power poses that work for americans actually make asians feel less confident because oh. if i stand there like this which which in an American context would be, I am powerful, that would actually be considered rude. So right. they, fe they feel less, uh, less powerful, which mm. would, would again bring in this point of how much of also even what happens through the body and the postures we take is determined by what's stored in the computer, for instance, through, yeah. uh, through cultural values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good point. Very good point. So, so I, I've, that, that's why I'm trying to really figure this thing out of, so what is that chimp? <laughs> and I think it comes mm. down to that question of what is that chimp? For me, at least, to be like, mm. so, so the way I can understand it is we have this computer, and I don't like the terms he uses at all. I don't like the terms. Yeah, the, it, it, like, it would be good to change them, but, you know, it's so, the ones so, that we've been using for a while. So, so, so maybe my... And I don't know if you've read the book, but there's one term I find really powerful that I would insert for computer, which would be the adaptive unconscious. I don't know if you've heard okay. or used that. I, I've heard that, but I've never known what it means. It's it's the so term, if it means what the computer means in this model, then I'm happy basic, to I'm basically. happy to go with that. Um, yeah, it, we can call it the adaptive unconscious. Yeah, you've read Blink, haven't you? By yes, Blink yes, is based yes, yes, on yes. this term of the adaptive unconscious, which is okay. a book. The book is called uh, Strangers to Ourselves by Timothy right. Wilson, which I find gives okay. a wonderful introduction to the unconscious from a cognitive science perspective. And basically right. saying, I, I prepared one quote actually, because I, I really like the quote, which is, um, a picture has emerged of a set of pervasive, adaptive, sophisticated mental processes that occur late, largely out of view. Indeed, some researchers have gone so far as to suggest that the unconscious mind does virtually all the work and that conscious will may be an illusion. But it's, it's about 
the idea is we actually have this computer this unconscious that learns through all sorts of interactions and where all of that learning is going on below the surface and it influences what we perceive how we interpret things um, how we react even before being aware um, that the reaction has started and that mm. all of that is basically built on adapting to the world in a way that makes the smoothest life and survival that that would be a very short summary of what he's proposing okay i'm, le I'm less I'm, I'm less keen on the final few words that it's adapting to the environment which gives you the smoothest life and survival that's not that's not the way i understand uh what was previously called a computer and now we're calling the adaptive unconscious not Great. the way i would have described it uh, okay yeah. how, how is how is your understanding different yeah okay uh because so when you say like i was trying to use your words again the smoothest um uh, sorry the smoothest life and life survival, and survival. Mm -hmm. yeah so survival is um a, a highly you know relevant concept from an evolutionary perspective but at the you know um um when when you take something at an evolutionary perspective you, it's got to be something that's working at species level right so for example human emotions which are universal can be it's fair to talk about them in terms of their survival benefit so like rage or fear are universal that i don't think any culture has ever been discovered that doesn't have those uh, so it's understood that they have they must presumably have a survival benefit uh, they're also common so, in so, other so you, animals so you understand survival just on the species level or but, can i yeah i mean i just wanted to uh continue like finish what i was saying about that so on, on the individual level um if someone uh so basically if you see anything that is in common among like an entire population then it's fair to suggest there's a survival reason for it it's very likely that there is right but then but then if something is like a case of individual difference then it's not really something with i mean yeah if it's a case of individual difference then it's not you're not really talking at the evolution level it's not something that's that's happening at that uh, uh sort of level of um analysis right so yeah. if 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 someone has a uh so what, I'm, what i suppose what i'm saying is the the fact that there is such a thing as the um uh, as the adaptive unconscious right given that that is common to all of humanity then i would think that having such a thing as an adaptive unconscious is a survival benefit and can be understood in terms of survival but the contents of it or the way in which it changes from moment to moment is is individual you know like i might i might approach a situation i might person a might um cross you know they might uh cross the road and almost get hit by a car and then they might say uh wow i'm, I'm so lucky um you know god must be looking down on me and helping me might say person a person b might cross the road and almost get hit by a car and say um I can't believe the drivers in this city, <laughs> right? So they, they might have different like emotional and uh, responses and like memories of these events, but it's not, that's not to say that, um, 
you know, being grateful for being taken care of by a spiritual entity or being angry about other people's uh, poor behavior or something, that either of those is necessarily, I mean, you know, but, but wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't, I, I can make it more idiosyncratic than this. Yeah, you know, but, it could but, be but, like but, some... But wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't these thoughts, like again, they can be automatic thoughts. For, mm -hmm. for me, it would be how have these thoughts become part of my automatic thinking? So what I mean by survival would be that I understand this unconscious and I would understand the computer as well like that. So um, Steve Peters talks about we put things into the computer. How, the human how, or, or the human yeah. or the chimp puts things. Human in, yeah. or the chimp. Um, what stays in the computer? Because I would say, and th this is where my survival comes in, and maybe I have a misunderstanding that we repeat what worked, and the, huh. the things we put into the computer are, are um, what worked. Where an example to maybe go back to this cultural difference between. Asians Americans would be in in an American culture there are certain values and uh, expected behaviors and such so that the computer or the adaptive unconscious will learn how to adapt to that and to thrive in that as well as I can with my uh, with whatever is given to me by birth mm. um, which would look different in an, in an Asian society where the values, the, the cultural processes, all of that are different. So I would say that even, even just how does the computer store things? What does it store? Um, how do these things become habituated? Has a lot to do with adapting to the environment, which, which I understand as a, so that my life goes the smoothest way. Um, so well, I mean, I would have, I would have, uh, before you put it that way, I would have said that it's essentially a question of a combination of repetition and emotion uh, and, and, and sense-making, actually. Uh, I would say those three things, repetition, emotion, and sense-making. Um, sense-making has to do with uh, schemas in long-term memory, so like larger structures in, in long-term memory, larger structures in the computer, you could say. Um, and... Um, which are built up of like large amounts of experience rather than small amounts. Um, so, um, but to, to try and actually, when you said uh, things to make your life go better or things that are uh, sort of adaptive, it was, as I was thinking, as you, I was listening to you, I was thinking, can I think of a counter example? It was actually not so easy to try and provide a counter example. Suppose that um, uh, two uh, partners, maybe a husband and a wife, are uh, you know whenever the wife brings up something the husband always like the first time it happens the husband sort of um uh ends up ends up pushing things into an argument right it, like it ends up being an argument basically and then when you know, maybe she brings it up again or it's just a situation that happens again like having someone over for dinner or something right some sort of ordinary situation and and then um and then there's another another argument right and then what happens is that the probably both parties, but we can just, just even talk about one. The, suppose the husband is um, uh, increasingly um, starting to get angry at the, at the thought that it might be mentioned. I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily, you know, adaptive. That's probably actually a bad yeah. way for things to go. <laughs> yes, I, 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 I fully get that. Um, 
you you make the assumption right now that that first argument starts on a blank slate well, it, it would be impossible for it to start on a blank slate, but I mean, it's like, it starts in a context where um, there's no history of this leading to rage, or there's no history yeah. of having this argument, yeah. And, and I would assume, and this is my view of the world, so this might be completely off, but I think there's quite a lot of uh, research to look at that, would be that there is a reason why the husband is reacting that way, even in the first argument, which might be based on, which I would say is, is based on the things he's learned in the past to a large mm -hmm. degree. So mm -hmm. that his adaptive unconscious or computer um, has stored, for instance, oh, uh, talking about emotions is dangerous. Mm -hmm. so I do this. So that there, there are like already habituated and automatic responses even to just that thing it doesn't even have to do necessarily with his wife or so that, that's good can we uh, can we take this analogy one sort of take this analogy one step further or take this yeah. scenario one step further so suppose that the situation is that this man has um has learned that uh revealing his emotions is dangerous now one way that this could have happened is that in the past um uh one way this could have happened is in the past, it could have been that he's had situations that he's revealed his emotions and then ended up being very embarrassed. Uh, and other situations he didn't reveal his emotions and, and everything was fine. Um, and, and then this, this has led him to, to consider that, you know, it's actually the, 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 the best thing to do is not to reveal them. But so, I suppose what, what that would mean is that this has been learned in a context where it was adaptive or it appeared to be adaptive, but now it's being applied to a situation where it's no longer adaptive. Yeah. So, but then, okay, in that case, I mean, I'm not sure if I'll be able to come up with any counterexamples as to things which are ever learned in the first place because, like, without being adaptive. Maybe, maybe, maybe all things that are learned in the first place are in some way adaptive. Um, but I mean, I mean, one one actual one case that came to mind as well was that um, a lot of the time, if you if you learn a, for example, if you learn a foreign language, you might speak a foreign language with a foreign accent. In fact, that's usual for people to do so. But um, you, actually, uh, it's difficult to. I mean, it's possible to reduce the strength of a foreign accent to make it more uh, similar to a native speaker. It's possible to do that. It's possible to do that kind of up to very, very, um, very high fidelity. But the reason why it doesn't happen on its own is that people still understand you. So it's kind of, there's no, there's no yeah. uh, obvious benefit to doing it. So people are just gonna try and be understood because that's what they're mainly what they're getting, what they're trying to do. Um, so that's an example where, um, you know, learning doesn't take place because there isn't a strong enough reason for that to be adaptive in the first place. So that's like another, another case in, in point of what you're saying but then are you saying that like things are learned generally speaking although i'll still try and think of some counter examples if i can but things um, are learned for, for it while they're adaptive but they may no longer be adaptive yeah or they may not be adaptive in other contexts and 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 this is actually part of what what you've also talked about i think with um with biases with um all of that where um at least as far as I know, the research is once you have a certain um, 
you have a certain program in your computer, your adaptive unconscious mm -hmm. has taken on certain patterns, certain behaviors mm -hmm. to get them out, to get a gremlin out, to get a goblin out mm -hmm. is very difficult because it will automatically make you see the world like that. It will automatically impact your behavior. It will automatically impact your chimp, whatever that is. I'm still trying to figure that out. Uh, it will automatically mm -hmm. impact how you think about the situation. Mm -hmm. So I think um, if, if I can just add two things, because this is what, what has been really active in me these past uh, days, also listening to your podcasts. Um, oh, yeah. So from this, from, this, um, um, from this adaptive unconscious strangers to ourselves model, he uses this metaphor of the um, of the the iceberg. I mean, that's a known model uh, mm -hmm. of uh, what's below what's below the surface is unconscious. Like all of this is unconscious. What's above the surface is conscious. Yes, he would actually say that model is really flawed because the comparison should be more: the whole iceberg is unconscious, and then we have this one snowball. This one right here is one snowball on top of the mm -hmm. iceberg. And that's actually our conscious mind. So, so right. he compares that amount of unconscious to, to this is the power of the unconscious, of the conscious mind. Mm -hmm. So um, I tried to apply that because you, you were talking about thinking is mostly memory in your podcast. Yes. And yeah. uh, the example of chess players. Yeah. And I try to apply that of like, I'm playing chess mm -hmm. and all the stuff I have in my long-term memory is like this, this is a, I don't even know how they're called in English. Is it, is it a rook? Yeah, that's called a, a rook or a castle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a, this is a rook. It does this. This is mm -hmm. a horse. It does this. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's my degree of knowledge. So if I look at the board, all I will see is like, do I do this? Or do I do this? Hmm, I could also do this. That's literally yeah, the degree yeah. of thinking I have. Mm -hmm. Whereas if, I've, if I have stuff in my long-term memory like a, like a master, mm -hmm. I have the things like, I don't see just one rook, but I see all the, uh, one, one horse, but I see all the implications the move would have and how it would strengthen yeah. or weaken my position. I kind yeah. of see this, this, um, this uh position but i kind of see it i have a good friend who's a who's a really good chess player and he often talks about it as he doesn't actually see the the single um pieces but he sees the force fields between the positions um, oh. and he sees like whole uh positions as one so mm. i am much more thinking of oh this is in danger and if I did this move, this whole place would open up to me. And mm. this is safe anyway, so I don't even have to worry about it. Mm. So it's, it's like stuff from my memory that I can think about that I can't if I don't have that in my memory. But yes. the point would be how much of that is actually happening through the unconscious rather than this little thing on top of the mountain. Like it gives us all this... Um, 
data to even think like that. Mm. Um, so the thing about like whether the con like how big of a you know how, how whether it's a snowball or, or, or more than a snowball. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm really not sure how I would apply actual scales to these things. So I, it's difficult for me to comment. Um, and it might be that he's just saying something like, I mean, it's obviously a criticism of people thinking that consciousness is, is a bigger part of the mind or a bigger part of the brain or whatever than, uh, than it really is. But I don't know who he's criticizing, so I, I don't actually know exactly mm -hmm. what he's referring to. But then in terms of what your description is now, I, um, I fully agree. You've very correctly, very well represented what I've tried to express on a podcast in many episodes. Um, one thing that I might add is that, um, so we can look at the diagram again. On the left side of the diagram, you have the picture of yourself uh, thinking about a chest uh, position. And what I would say is that, uh, yes, so those three things in your thought bubble are all going to be occurring um, and they're going to, you know, at least partly be coming out as suggestions from your long-term memory, which is a, under the sea part of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. uh, because you are not so familiar with chess, it's, it's not going to be like super, super automatic for those things to come to mind. It's like they're mm -hmm. going to be like slightly, yeah. slightly weakly suggested or like kind of slightly weakly guided from your long-term memory, but you're still going to need effort. a fair amount of concentration yeah. to actually think about, oh yeah, it moves this way. Or like, let me think about how this thing moves. It moves like this, you know, rather than it being like you see the board and it's just like, you can't fail to see that move because it's so automatic. It's like almost re basically reached your level of perception. Like you're, you're quite a way away from that because you're not an experienced player. So you still got to, even though you remember all of these things, you, you still have to like sort of um, uh, use a fairly large amount of concentration for you to think those thought processes. And then um, I, I have to, I have to, I have to like, I mean, the, the moves kind of come up, but I have to work to then look, okay, I look at this rook. I could do this with this rook. I look at this mm -hmm. horse. I could do this with this horse. Like I, yeah. I then have to think that through. Yes. So that's, and, yeah. Yeah. And what, so, so one, one thing that I, yeah, that I was saying is, is, the, is, yeah, exactly. The automaticity being low. And as a result, the amount of effort required to think these thoughts being high. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, effort basically meaning, as far as I'm concerned, effort meaning the amount of, the amount of energy in your, the amount of attention required from your conscious, which I would also call your human, um, the amount of effort required from that. And the second thing is in that thought bubble, you have, you know, you can do this move or you can do this move or you can do this move. I, I think what would also happen is that you would, you would be having thoughts which go one step further. So for example, you might be thinking things like, I could do this move and take a piece or I could do this move and the opponent would do this move. Right. So these kind of things, which are combining one thought with one other thought, um, those things, because you're starting to think those things, those things would gradually start to make an impact on your iceberg, right? They gradually start to make an impact on your long-term yeah. memory. So if you continue to do this for several hours or several days, then it would become easier and easier to think about when I do this, the opponent does this. Right, because it's going to get more. It's going to get gradually more into automatic, as you as you think those thoughts. This, this, so there's this like is, a downward. Is, there's a downward movement as well as an upward movement. Basically, the the upward the thing from the top is building the thing on the bottom, and the thing on the bottom is suggesting things to the top. 
this is also what you talked about with the unconscious incompetence and this learning model. I tried to like create a graph for it. Of mm -hmm. We were uh, in the beginning when learning how to play chess, I don't even know what I don't know. Like I mm. might know, I don't know how to play chess, but I don't know what that actually means. Yeah. And then as I'm, as I'm trying to learn it, I'm still incompetent, but I'm growing in consciousness of how incompetent I am. Yeah. Then I'm becoming conscious. Oh, this is all the shit I'm incompetent of. Uh, I become competent in some, and I think most people then go like, okay, now I can play chess. And they actually don't get much better, uh, like consciously, like they don't study masters or they don't do stuff like that, but they play. And that would mean that potentially their unconscious gets better over time, but they spend very little time to really like work their unconscious and to really build it. Whereas somebody who who is becoming an expert actually stays in this conscious work on stuff again and again and again so that their competence grows in a in a different way i tried to like create a little bit of a drawing for it i'm not so, convinced of this one yet but uh yeah your, your visualization is confusing me a little bit i'm, I'm getting something different <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not fully clear on what your visualization is, but I, I think I, I kind of get, I think I get what you're saying, but I, I wouldn't, I mean, have you seen the graph for the Dunning-Kruger effect? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that, that's, that's uh, some, some sort of graph, graphical attempt to get across the idea of um, how, you know, how much you know and how much you think you know kind of thing. Uh, although it's it's not direct, it's like a, a result of these dynamics. Then mm. you get this funny shaped curve that goes like up really steeply, and then sort of has this long U shape uh, afterwards. Which is interesting because I think what I was trying to to do with these two graphs is this distinction between um, I'm learning something and I really develop expertise because expertise yeah. is so much more tedious, and it's so much about um, like. I'm able to do something to some degree, but then I want to improve on that. And it takes a lot of conscious effort to actually become expertly at something. Yeah. So, um, uh, hmm. I mean, my, so currently, right. I'm a fairly, I'm a fluent Chinese speaker, basically a fluent Mandarin speaker, but I, uh, still, I, I, I'm still not um, able to read books in Chinese very fast. Like I still need to use a dictionary. Um, it's not always easy for me to understand. Um, so like, you know, there are, there are characters I don't know. Right. So that's the stage I am now when I now, in order to improve my Mandarin by speaking, I do very little improvement. That's always really been the case. I haven't, I mean, that's a complicated story, but basically the majority of my learning process I've, I've, I've done through books, but now in particular, because most of the time I can express myself fine when I speak and I'm just repeating old behaviors. Um, when it comes to, to improving, what I need to do is I need to sit down with and try and read a book and then get vocabulary I don't know and study it with flashcards and copying out words. Uh, those are the main ways I use to study vocabulary. Um, and then the, the experience of it is really painful. The experience of like, particularly of the vocabulary part is super painful um, it's very frustrating and I have a quite common thought that crops up in my head, which is something along the lines of why is this still so hard? Um, now that thought is 
um, doesn't really take things into context because it doesn't really take things in the appropriate context because actually um, I've covered tremendous ground. You know, I'm essentially a fluent Mandarin speaker. So that's like, that's a lot of ground that I've covered, but I still have the feeling it's the same similar level of, of like mental exertion to carry on moving forward. So I feel like the conscious weight I need to bear to keep moving forwards is, is kind of the same. It's like basically the same or like close to when I was like a beginner or an intermediate. I mean, um, I mean this, this, this is one of those distinctions uh, that I've maybe gotten from the uh, research and expertise is that the more of an expert you are, the more flow you experience in doing the activity. Mm -hmm. But to improve, you have to return to the grind of improving right. where you are. And that will never change. The potential is even that it will get more and more difficult over time because the things you are trying to learn are, are getting more and more complex or more and more nuanced. Yeah, that's it's certainly a cause of my experience. And it does make sense in terms of the model. Like basically doing things that you're already inside your computer, or sorry, we're using a different word, adaptive unconscious, but right? doing things that are already inside there um, can serve to make those things more automatic, but it can't really change them if you're just doing things that are already there. So if you are trying to change them, then you need to use your consciousness or your human or whatever, or your working memory to, um, uh, you know, to add new material, to add new behaviors or, or knowledge. Yeah. In order to do that, you need to either deliberately change what you're doing, if it's a performance, um, or you need to uh, put yourself in a situation that you can barely handle um, and try and handle it. In which case, I mean, those two things, you know, deliberately trying to change my, to try and use, to use a language example again, deliberately change my performance would mean things like analyzing my own speech in order to change it and make it better. And that's really impractical because I'm just trying to talk to people. So like that, that's just too difficult to do. But um, doing something like uh, reading a really hard book is, is putting myself in a situation where I have to like cope with something difficult. So that's something that does push me forward. And um, yeah, if I, if I only just do ordinary day-to-day -day talking, I'm going to become more automatic in the things I already can do. Uh, which, which is which is, which is a kind of improvement, but it's yeah. not the same as like adding more stuff. Which is what you know the real way to really make sure you keep going. You need you, you know both of those things are going to help. One thing is going to making the things you already do that are useful, making them more ingrained, and which adding more things that are useful. I, I I like the distinction Anders Ericsson has in his book Peak about it. Mm -hmm. like, I know that that's one you didn't read, but. Mm -hmm. um, in that book, he focuses massively on mental representations, saying mm -hmm. to develop expertise, what you need to focus on is developing your mental representations and then practicing them. What, what does mm -hmm. that mean? For instance, for you, if, if you were to, for instance, work on your accent in Chinese, mm -hmm. you would have mm -hmm. to figure out what do I even have to change about my speech? You yes. would have to develop that mental representation of, oh, I'm saying, oh, instead of, oh. And then you would have mm -hmm. to practice making that difference so, so that it actually gets to your adaptive unconscious and it mm. takes that in. And that's yeah. effort because you have to override how you've done it mm -hmm. for years and years yeah. and years and years before.
yeah, another yeah. example from my practical like i've i've learned multiple coaching and psychotherapy approaches by now and mm. one of the things i notice is that many people take these trainings and they leave mostly the way they came in so mm. they they still ask mostly the same questions that they have in the beginning of the training when the training is done and mm. one of the things i've always done is literally study the questions of the of the approach i'm learning right now forbid mm. myself to ask any other questions which especially in the beginning of my trainings always is horrible because i'm sitting mm. there not knowing what to do because all of my old programs would say say this now ask this question now but i'm mm -hmm. i'm i'm forbidding myself mm. to do that through that mm. i usually have a horrible time in the first months of the training but in the end i've really learned something that i didn't mm -hmm. know before because i mm -hmm. really focused on those new skills mm -hmm. and it, it's it's that until it is part of your adaptive unconscious it's a painful process because you're yeah. trying to override habit through that little snowball on top of the adaptive unconscious you're like ah, no i'm gonna do it different which for yeah, yeah 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 positioning your tongue or mm. what question to ask when somebody uh, is in contact with an experience is that's difficult mm. yeah Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think uh, we we've dug through that topic pretty deeply. Yeah, I would agree. So, so yeah. Which so, where where does this, this take us now? What the fuck is the chimp? <laughs> okay, so the, the chimp is. Um, yeah. Okay. So, are you saying that because we just did? We just talked about this with no reference to to it. No, uh, I'm I'm saying that because that's still the question I have. Because okay, okay, I, 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 yeah, I like what we covered, and I actually think it's it's really important, and that this also this unconscious influences how we feel because it also has stored emotional reactions and all of that. Mm, and yes, then I I get yes. to the question of, in comparison to that, what is the chimp? Is is the um, so I uh, one thing I want to do is attempt to answer the question, but I also want to bring up my own problem with the chimp as well. Can we um, before we go there? Because I really want to fully focus on this. I'll have to use the restroom. Um, oh yeah, sure, sure. I'll be back in about two minutes. Boom. Yeah. So before the break, you were asking about how the chimp is involved in all of this. And I said, mm -hmm. I've got two things to say. One is an attempt to answer your question. And the second is the fact that I also have my own uh, problem with the chimp at the moment. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I'll try and, uh, I'll actually start with my problem. So my problem is mostly that um, it appears in Steve Peter's book that he describes the human as having certain what appears that might be emotions. And if the chimp is supposed to be the center of emotion, then it doesn't seem uh, very complete to have some emotions with the human. Is he, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe I should look at it again very carefully, but it looks like it, I mean, certainly the human has preferences um, of like, uh, he talks about things that the human wants uh, in terms of things like um, civility among people and stuff. 
these kinds of and, and other kinds of preferences and the, the chimp having different needs. So that is slightly confusing as far as this model is concerned. Um, also, um, I don't know how much some other uh, physiological type of things would be considered part of the chimp, like hunger, uh, for example. I, I, I don't know, maybe that doesn't count. I considered thinking of that, calling that like the lizard or something, because, uh, <laughs> because you know, when I think about it, the majority of behaviors that we would describe as chimp are actually to do with social or personal things. They require a sense of self and a sense of other. Um, or a sense of community or some some such uh, situation. They're usually about things like um, They're often about things like well, actually no sometimes they're about food Sometimes they're about like food cravings and stuff. So, mm -hmm. so it's not fair to say that it's just social but social seems to be a, the major the Most major of it. Yeah Most of it. Um, anyway, so to try and answer your question. I mean the way I view it is that um, the working memory, long-term memory combination without looking at the chimp is a bit like looking at a person who has no emotions or whose emotions are very, I suppose you could say quiet. It's like they're not really feeling anything very obvious right now. Um, whereas, you know, that's obviously a diminished model of what a person is. Um, so uh, I just think of, of the chimp as being uh, a part of the mind that reacts faster well we know that according to the model anyway it's slower than the computer but it's, it's significantly slower than the computer but it's significantly faster than the human at responding and um it it um it takes in information that has already been filtered through perception and therefore has already been potentially filtered through many parts of the computer um it takes in that information and then it provides what i would think of as an improvised emotional response. So you might see a social situation and you could interpret it as a threat. And then, uh, as in your, 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 you could have a perception of it as being something potentially threatening. And then the, 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 um, the chimp would be the sort, the, the part of the mind that, uh, gives an emotional reaction that's appropriate to viewing something that might be a threat. So it could be fear or anger or something like that. Um, so that, that would be an example. And then, um, uh, and then in terms of whether the chimp is the seat of all emotion, um, so he does talk about the idea that gremlins and goblins and, and stuff and, and various different things that can be inside, these are names for basically automatic things that are in the computer um, within adaptive unconscious. So things that are in the adaptive unconscious can also have and do commonly also have related emotions. My current way of thinking about that is that um, you can think of it as uh, perhaps it's like this, perhaps it's like the adaptive unconscious, you know, much like we were using the word butlers. Last time we spoke, we used the word butlers mm -hmm. of um, uh, suggestions coming from uh, the adaptive unconscious and the chimp towards the human of like, this is something you can think now, this is something you can feel now, this is something you can say now, kind of thing. And uh, it's possible in many cases to reject these suggestions. Um, Steve Peters also talks about it's possible to reject the chimp, but when that happens, then the chimp is going to kick off and you're going to have a potentially a fight between a human and a chimp, which is needs careful management. Um, so so there's, there are these butlers that go from the other two senses to the human. Now, my thinking, my sort of current thought about this is you might, 
even think of it as like the computer or the adaptive unconscious is also providing butlers to the chimp. So it's kind of like if, if you're, um, but the, the, the chimp isn't some, well, I don't know whether we can say that the chimp can or can't reject um, suggestions from the, the, the adaptive unconscious. It might just be a way of thinking like the chimp is kind of the, you can think about, about it like this. I, I don't know if this is going to be helpful or sensible, but you can think about it like this. Maybe the chimp is the seat of emotion and, um, and therefore kind of very much like inside our consciousness, much as the human is. Um, but, um, but the, uh, what the adaptive unconscious can do is it can basically, um, give suggestions to the chimp as to what the chimp should do. If no suggestions are given, the chimp will improvise. So, so basically what I hear right now, and this is also what I, so the model I hear from you, which I've tried to draw and it looks horrible, but hey, better than not having a drawing. Um, oh, where is the drawing? Do you see it? It's not on my screen right now. That's it was strange. a second ago. That is very strange. Let's try again. There we go. So basically, okay. situation is happening. It goes into the computer first. Mm -hmm. And from the computer, it goes both to the chimp and to the human. I called it me. Uh, yeah. Because I'm, I, I, did, I don't agree with many of his assumptions in this, but I'm really trying to get this model. And through the chimp, it can still come to, to me as well. Uh, mm -hmm. so this is kind of the, the flow of emotion, uh, flow of information. And yeah, this is a great diagram. I, I would, um, I would, if I could offer some slight modifications to it. Sure. Um, uh, one thing I would say is that, um, if there were, if it would be nice if there was a way to mark on the diagram that if the computer doesn't have anything so I think, you know, in a way there are, this term computer is quite broad because on the one hand, um, it's on the one hand, it's like learned behaviors and reactions, but on the other hand, some of these can, can actually affect your perception. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, on, on whether the computer is going to affect perception here is something that, um, you know, it might be in some cases it does more and in some cases it does less. Um, I suppose I was going to suggest that there might, you know, in some cases the arrow might pass straight through the computer without really interacting with it and it hit the chimp because there isn't very mm -hmm. much, it, there's more, it's more improvisation when there isn't as much um, uh, interpretation happening at the computer level. In a way you can have two different arrows from the computer to the chimp. One arrow is uh, perception and one arrow, and one arrow is suggestion. Mm -hmm. as, as in one arrow says, this is what, is out there. This is what I see with my eyes, which it doesn't go directly from the eyes because it goes through the computer, if you like. And then another arrow is suggestion saying, you know, you, you should get angry now, or, you know, you should be happy now or something. Right. So they're two, two different arrows and suggestion may be an arrow that, that isn't there. Like sometimes it's going to be there and sometimes it isn't uh, between the, the computer and the chimp. The thing, so I, I like this, 
I also think it would be important to really get clear on what does the computer or the adaptive unconscious actually do. Like it, it, it influences perception. It does all of these different things. Mm -hmm. so it would be, um, I'm going to look at that, at that book again to get clear on what, what is, what does he um, include in the adaptive unconscious? Because as far as he, that author, um, Timothy Wilson goes, he would say, it, it uh, organizes perception, it has its own interpretations, it can even um, uh, start actions and even control actions to large degrees. So the adaptive yes. unconscious, the computer has a shitload of power actually. Um, it's also, it's when we say we're acting on autopilot, the mm -hmm. autopilot is either, is either like almost, almost entirely the computer or it's like the chimp with admixtures of computer. Yeah. And the, the thing I just came to when I was also in the bathroom um, is, and I, and I imagine this could be a, a much larger discussion still, um, was, I don't know if you've ever heard of the polyvagal theory. I've heard of it and I've got no idea what it is. Yeah, it's, it's basically a, a quite modern. It's not yet fully agreed upon, but I think it makes a, a lot of sense, um, agree mm -hmm. on how the human nervous system works. Um, right. And it's actually interesting because Steve Peters, one of the main ways he introduces the chimp is by giving it this, like it has, uh, it has certain needs and it mm -hmm. has this fight, flight, freeze mm -hmm. response, which is interestingly, those are like um, in the polyvagal, let me, let me see if I can do this because um, I think it's smart. The polyvagal basically looks at our nervous system as having these, uh, these three layers um, or three evolutionarily built upon um, reaction patterns mm -hmm. of which the oldest is to freeze. If uh, like our our oldest ancestors, when they were still like cells or even very small animals, if there was something dangerous, they would just freeze and hope it misses me. Mm -hmm. Our our oldest um, strategy that we as humans still have. Um, mm -hmm. A newer strategy would be to uh, to either fight or flee. That's mm -hmm. actually an evolutionarily a newer. Um, strategy or two different strategies to uh, deal with danger it's like this is dangerous i'm going to get away or this is dangerous i'm going to fight this and if, mm. if if my if my nervous system thinks both of these are too dangerous i will go to freezing mm -hmm. um, the newest part of our nervous system and this is just a really really rough overview is um we actually have as mammals we have something that no other animal has which is what he calls the social engagement um, section of our, um, of our nervous system, which is actually connecting with another person, talking, um, uh, for instance, having facial connection, which you can see with most mammals, we have eye contact. Babies are nursed and there is a connection through our eyes. And um, that's actually something that reptiles or older parts don't have, older animals don't have. 
Mm. Now, the thing that's that where I want to connect it, and maybe this is what the chimp actually is in essence, is that um, the the researcher who came up with the polyvagal theory, his name is Stephen Porges, he he basically says our nervous system, which does include parts of our limbic brain, limbic brain, which is what he maps the chimp on, um, is constantly asking the question, am I safe or not? Am mm -hmm. I safe or not? And mm -hmm. what is the best strategy to survive in this situation? Mm -hmm. um, and, the, the ner and he calls that process neuroception because he says it basically flies under the radar that our nervous system is constantly asking, um, am I safe? And it will start activating um, these different reaction patterns. I'm not safe, so I better fight, or I'm not safe, so I better flee, or I am safe, so I, I better connect, um, depending on what the interpretation is. And maybe actually what the chimp is at heart is, um, am I safe? Are my needs taken care of, whatever these needs are, and they may be slightly different from chimp to chimp. Uh, and what is the best strategy to choose to keep me safe and take care of my needs? Mm. And that it's these basic um, nervous system strategies, which he calls fight, flight, freeze. Maybe uh, that's actually the over an overlap. Does that make sense to uh, you? I'm explaining that. So the, the needs of the chimp though are, um, while safety is included, uh, there are other needs mm -hmm. like, um, yeah, uh, like m most obvious desires actually like, you know, be it food or sex or territory or power to some extent, uh, he describes as being, um, chimp, uh, chimp needs in a way. Um, so that sounds a bit broader than what you were describing. Yeah, it, it does. And I'm not sure if it's um, like this, this makes, what does safe mean? I think is safe. My body is not harmed mm. or is safe. Um, my tribe is not harmed. For instance, uh, I have food. Um, I, I take care of my offspring by uh, inseminating as many, as many uh, uh, females as there are. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the, 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 hmm. it would be nice if uh, if safe didn't end up being kind of an allegorical word because the narrower the definition of a word, the kind of the more powerful the word is. Mm -hmm. If safe ends up meaning lots and lots of things, then yeah. it's, it becomes less less useful as a word. I, I I really like that. This is this is literally me think, uh, thinking on the edge of my pants right now. Like on uh -huh. the seat of my pants, and I just had this thought while I was. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, one, one, one thing that uh, that also I was going to comment on the diagram that we were talking about as well mm -hmm. that you drew, is that you have a small circle inside, um, inside the human circle that says self. Mm -hmm. And I I would have put that inside the computer. Ah. Can you can um, you say more about that? Yeah, so um, so my understanding of what the human is, although this may be slightly against what Steve Peters was actually saying when I think about this more carefully, 
My understanding of what the human is is basically your current awareness because that's what working memory more or less is. And I, I strongly associate that circle with working memory. So um, it's just it's kind of like your current attention or your current constant um, your current what your yeah awareness or consciousness. I know that all those things may have slightly different meanings, but to me they're more or less the same. And I, I consider them to be all inside. Uh, the circle, the big circle. Mm -hmm. And then your sense of self includes things, uh, uh, to a large extent, it's about things like your identity, like who you are as a person. Um, we know that this changes over the lifespan. In particular, it's not very well developed among young children. Um, and in particular, teenagers uh, change a lot because at the age of, I think this may be very culturally, there might be a large cultural um, element to what age this happens but basically uh, sort of young teenagers around 13-ish start to um, have a major change apparently in their reward system of their brain as well around social rewards changes their, they, they start to answer questions about who they are uh, in ways that sound more like an adult because children below that age will usually refer to something that has happened recently like within the last day to describe things like they, or you ask them like who are you what kind of person are you they'll say something about what happened within the last few hours or within the last day, rather than over some longer period of time accumulating larger amounts of, of, of information and experience to inform who they are. Um, so I think, you know, for that reason, that's why I would describe it as something that lives in, it's kind of, it's a form of knowledge of, mm -hmm. of like what is, uh, I mean, knowledge might be a, slightly awkward word for this I, but it's, I, it's a form do, of stored information if you like i do like your your use of the word knowledge it's actually one of the um one of the more interesting aspects also of psychotherapy research is that um in the cognitive fields they talk about uh adaptive knowledge but also maladaptive knowledge where we once adapted right. to something and we still have that as knowledge but it's maladapted to our life as it is now. Yeah, I mean, I, something I'd quite like to bring in here, it feels natural to do so, is just um, multiple, um, multiple analogies for the, um, how normally you would actually talk about the human and presumably just the computer, although you could say the computer and the chimp or something uh, linked together, is in, in terms of two, two levels. Um, uh, it's difficult to know where the chimp falls within these analogies, actually, like which side it falls on. But some people have used the term uh, the, like a rider and an elephant. Mm -hmm. um, and some people, I've, I've considered the term a water and a rock. So like the water flows around the rock, but then with lots of flowing, then the rock changes shape according to the water. That's very similar to the interaction of working memory and long-term memory. Um, and I think, you know, I have no experience of... of therapy or anything but i presume that um many times when people are in therapy they will be providing uh answers to or or, or perception around or ways of interpreting situations which are very particular to them and presumably the therapist gets quite used to their way of interpreting events and the reason why the same thing keeps coming up over and over again is because you know it's living inside it's like a really uh, deeply ingrained um, element of their AU, of their adoptive, adaptive unconsciousness. So what, what you're aiming for as a therapist, I presume, is to change their AU in such a way that they stop 
doing things or, or you know, believing things which are actually making their lives worse. You know, and, and what, what I'm trying to say is that the, even though the sense of self, I, I think this is partly where the word human is, is, is awkward in this model. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that human makes it sound like that's where your self is, but, you know, self is something that is relatively permanent, as in it relatively high fidelity, like, like high repeatability. If you ask someone who they are on Monday and then on Wednesday and then on Friday, you know, and in the morning and in the evening, they'll probably give similar-ish answers. You know, that, that means that this isn't something that is um, just in their awareness uh, at that particular moment, but this is something that's being like retrieved, right? This is a, a permanent feat, like a sort of a permanent feature of them that's being like re- repeated to you and, and sort of performed, but coming out from this information source, which is the, what we call the adaptive unconsciousness or the, or the computer. The, the thing I'm, so, so I, I fully agree with you around the sense of self. Um, I use mm-hmm. the term differently in this thing. This, this is a very roughly drawn thing I drew this morning, uh, which still has thoughts that I'm having in here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the first one would be, I think your, your understanding of that a lot of our sense of self, our identity is in the adaptive unconscious, I would fully agree yes. with. And I would also say that, that on one level, a lot of therapy is about changing the way the adaptive unconscious automatically reacts. Yes. Mm-hmm. I also think there are different aspects of therapy. And that's what I was also trying to point to with self, um, which is, I would not agree with you with saying that the human is the same as working memory. Okay. I would say that on one level, they are very, very closely linked. But I think if we get into the question of what is consciousness mm-hmm. and we, and, and I would make a big, um, or I don't know if a big, but I would make a distinction here between um, what is conscious thinking, what is conscious mm-hmm. thought and what mm-hmm. is consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like what, what is it that is conscious? That, that is a very different thing for me. And I think mm-hmm. that's a level of um, inquiry that I, I see cognitive science completely miss. I think that's mm-hmm. actually what old meditation teaches. Um, you, had this, you had this assessment of uh, a lot of what they do is they train habits. And I, and mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think that is a lot of what, what's happening in meditation practice. I also think there is something else. And that's, for instance, something I find in the sessions I lead. Um, in, the, in, one, in the approach I mostly use, there is the concept of self, which mm-hmm. would be similar to human, but it's mm-hmm. actually, um, it's not just working memory, not just thought, but it's actually a state that we all have available to us in which we are non-judgmental, open, and we are able to be with a large amount of, for instance, charge that may be, may be coming from the chimp without getting lost. It's not just, oh, I can think about it, but it's actually, I can hold that. And there is a presence and, a, and an awareness in me that's bigger than whatever is happening in my emotional body right now. Mm. And that is what is called, oh, <laughs> yeah, come on. 
<laughs> she, she doesn't like being famous. Um, but okay. but that, that would be a distinction for me. On Are we talking about uh, conscious thinking? Are we talking about being conscious? Are we talking about consciousness? For me, those things, at least in my personal exploration, they are very different. And mm. um, so that's, that's a question I have about the human, which is mm. very much um, separated from the question I have about the chimp. But mm. what is the human would be a massive question for me. Yeah, well, I, uh, I think that's a good point, well raised. Um, this is something actually I've, I've spoken to other people on a similar, you know, who've said things which are kind of along the same lines, but I feel like, um, uh, in my previous conversations, they were too heated and uh, it was difficult to actually understand what, well, I could kind of understand what they were saying, but it almost, we just kind of ended up butting heads rather than, you know, I'm, I'm glad that <laughs> glad that we can be nice and civil and actually, you know, uh, communicate clearly about what we're saying. Cause no, I, I mean, I don't normally think about things in that way. Um, but it does, I, I can imagine what you're describing and it's not, um, uh, it's not that easy to, uh, fit that kind of experience into this model. I think if you, if I was going to try and fit that experience in this model, I would say um, that there might be uh, some sort of kind of highly ingrained uh, schemas that are like really easily activated in the default, like just in most situations is easily going to be activated. And they're just going to sort of um, put you in your kind of normal resting frame of mind. It also brings me to think about something called the default mode network, which I don't know if you've heard about before. Um, so that is sometimes abbreviated to the DMN. The default mode network is, um, uh, so neuroscientists have, have become more interested in studying uh, the, uh, the activity in the brain when nothing in particular is happening. So like when you're staring at a wall or, you know, you're just kind of walking around, you're not like doing a task. You're just like what's ha happening inside your brain when you're not doing anything in particular. And it turns out that um, different people have different brain regions active in that time. And often um, things, uh, people who are highly successful within a particular domain typically have as part of their default mode network. So that's parts of their brain that are active, but they're unaware of the fact that these places are active while they're not doing that thing. Um, then for example, if it's a, um, if it's a, uh, a physicist, then parts of the brain, which are likely to be active while they're thinking about physics, are also likely to at least be partly active while they're not thinking about physics. Um, you know, or, and, 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 you know, this generalizes to other, other fields. So, um, to other kinds of people. So, um, it, it varies between people and it changes something about people, this thing called the default mode network. And the fact that there is some sort of default, which is different between different people, um, makes it seem like, I know that's not part of the model. I know that's a neurology thing and not a cognitive science thing. Um, but it's partly due to the, you know, while this model is of course, uh, highly applicable and very enlightening, um, there are elements of it where when you're familiar enough with a, no with a model, there are elements of it that, that, 
kind of make you want to ask more questions as you've been asking a lot of questions. One of the questions that I tend to ask more about is actually exactly the complement to what you've been on. You've been asking about the chimp and, and also the human. I actually ask about the computer <laughs> because I'm thinking, you know, something's going on there, um, which uh, something more is going on there than we give it credit for because, you know, there's all this stuff that happens, um, you know, that, that you, you might come to a creative solution to a problem that you realize in the bath, right? And what's happened is your, your, your working memory has been completely uninvolved in the, in the arrival of that solution, right? And presumably your chimp hasn't been terribly involved either. So like somehow this adaptive unconscious has like come up with this thing that you haven't been involved. So it's like doing something quite complex and quite long term. These things, you could be incubating for days or weeks. And over, over days or weeks, that kind of time scale, it could be coming up with a solution to a problem so it's doing something clever um, on top and, of what it normally does. And, and that's, that's, for instance, why I like the term adaptive unconscious much more than computer, where you just put things in there, like the chimp is like, oh, and the human is like, oh. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it's actually, like, it's trying to adapt to mm -hmm. what you need in your life. And mm. that actually includes, uh, like, lots and lots and lots and lots of... Um, processes that you're not not remotely aware of but it, mm. but it's happening so um I, I like your question about that as well um mm. so i mean in terms of the, the thing about consciousness i think the way that it's been phrased to me before is that when someone is meditating then they are observing their own thoughts and so observing your own thoughts like who is the observer you know who is the thinker and my response to that was they could both be the working memory mm -hmm. there could be parts of the working memory that are observing the other parts of the working memory and i don't think that's a contradiction no, um it's maybe maybe just what what's my experience for instance with with the sessions and all of that i do is mm -hmm. i'm to maybe give you an idea of what I'm trying to point to is I have this experience regularly, even with clients and people who potentially have never had an experience of rest or feeling well or something like that in their life. Mm -hmm. Like they have no conscious memory of that. Mm -hmm. And they've had struggles all their life and they come to me and, um, it's, it's all about how they have these internal struggles and they want to get rid of them. And, duh, duh. and through the session, one of the things that, that's about this approach I do is trying to help them to um, unblend, disidentify from the, from the parts that are active in them. And mm -hmm. now the question would be, is that part of the chimp or the computer? I would probably say both. Um, mm -hmm. And through that, connect to their self not sense of self, but self. And mm. um, the experience I've had multiple times is that really when they do that, there is such a fundamental shift in them where they, they get into a place of, oh, I, I'm actually open towards this. This thing, this part that has created problems in my life for decades, I actually feel compassion with it right now. And that fundamental shift 
where they will then also sometimes not always call this is really me mm. and it's not about a sense of self of oh uh, because i am a good person but it's about they have an experience that is fundamentally different to what they have had before and they feel like this is me mm. and what is that like and i and i have no i have no immediate answer for that but um but it is a reality in my world that that realm or experience or whatever that is exists even if it has never been there before or never consciously been there before so i mean one way that i would think of that is um so one way that I might think of that is that there, these thoughts that they have had over a very long period are like very experienced butlers. Mm -hmm. And these very experienced butlers are, are always sort of coloring their experience, always changing their thought pattern. And then this is an occasion where they have to, this is an occasion where they I mean, because I guess a lot of the time when you have these butlers, you accept the butler by default. And if you and, and the, without a recognition of the fact that it is a, a butler, so to speak. So um, this is something that comes out a bit in the in the chimp paradox that is difficult to distinct. In fact, all of these uh, behaviors are for num like there's there's no obvious distinction between the actions of the three uh elements of the chimp model like as in you you won't be aware of it in the moment there are certain questions you can ask which can help to elucidate whether the chimp is currently in charge of the thinking or not right um i don't like the, that the, question by the way i think that's a really shitty question the do i want to feel like that i think that's a bad question from my okay. personal experience, but but I I, okay. I get I get that that's how he does it. It's that's just one of it, yeah. it's it's one of my my things when reading the book. I'm like, oh, I don't like it, and maybe that's just okay. my uh, my long term memory going there. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I, I you know you have plenty of experience in that, and I don't have any, so I I was I was take I take it at face value when he says it. Um, but like you know, it's it's not there's not an obvious way to what I'm trying to say is there's not an obvious way to tell these things apart. And certainly it's definitely not obvious when something's coming from the compute, the, you know, the adaptive unconsciousness rather than from the chimp, for example, it could be a long ingrained emotional response rather than an improvised emotional response. There's not, not an obvious way to tell which one it is. Um, so basically, you know, you would be accepting all these butlers all the time because that's the default thing to do. And then when you have a, a response which is not about accepting the butler, but about observing the butler um, or observing a whole series of them, you might come to an experience of realizing it's possible to, to not just blindly accept well, the fact that these are butlers and that you're not blindly accepting them, but you're observing them. That might be enough of a different experience and potentially it could still work inside the model. Yeah, um, I, th I think the, the main point would then be um, if I may just draw that, like, yeah. so we have our, what you call working memory, which is with its five to seven contents, 
-hmm. and also the way it's defined in the chimp model is kind of it's your rational thinking mm -hmm. the thinking would still be about the contents so mm -hmm. i have this thought and i have that thought and i think for me the shift is fundamentally it's not about the thought itself but it's about the the space the thought is taking taking place in mm -hmm. and then the question of what is that space so i mean i would probably call that space awareness um and, and i and, wouldn't shy away from calling it consciousness either and and then the question would be at least for me because i would agree but then the question would be and what is that so i i'd have to ask some clarifying questions about your question so when you ask what is consciousness there are actually several levels at which that uh, an, an attempt can be made to approach that question i'm not going to say it's going to be answered i don't think there's anyone in the world who knows for sure uh or i, I don't think there's well certainly there's not a consensus anyway um but you know one person might ask what is consciousness like um along the lines of um, you know, you could have a more philosophical question around that. You could, um, you, you could take it from different perspectives. You could be asking whether consciousness is like, how tied up is it with the material world? Some people might say there's a disconnect between the material world and consciousness. Some people might say that people at the other extreme would say that consciousness is an entirely material thing and if you don't think about it that way then uh, you know it's you're, you're doing you're, then it's unhelpful to do so uh th there are people who discuss whether consciousness is um you know at, at a kind of physical level you know is it something to do with brain connectivity or is it i mean i'm slightly more of the position that it must be fundamental to the to the basic physics of the universe otherwise i don't understand how it could happen you know, I, I reckon that, you know, electrons or something have some sort of, you know, like some, some sort of uh, minor level of consciousness all of their own, presumably, because otherwise I don't see how you could build a, build a person who has consciousness if, if the individual building blocks contain no consciousness. I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. But that's just my perspective, you know. So, but that's probably not where you're, I imagine that's not where you're going with this. You're not going like, are you a pan-psychist? or not i don't think that's your question although that might that is a way to interpret your question yeah i mean and 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 i don't have a i don't have an answer i'm looking for i just i think that question is important um, mm -hmm. number one that and it's it's a little bit of that um to to offer more options of continuum because i'm still very fascinated by this model because i think it has big implications and it's it's asking me to rethink some of the ways i've looked at things mm -hmm. um because i'm because i think in my model there was to a large degree there was the adaptive unconscious and there was consciousness mm -hmm. and i and i really like this idea of having the having the chimp in there and mm -hmm. trying to figure out what that is and how that mm -hmm how that works and mm -hmm. um so and and i still like the discussion and i also like to even just 
name these ideas of um, what is consciousness. I'm, I'm not sure we're going to get an answer, especially also because I don't have that much longer left today. Um, mm, but yeah. I think, but I think it is an an interesting question to to look at it and to look at is is the thinking itself consciousness? Is consciousness something different than the thinking? Is uh, I mean, my, my my normal response to this would would be essentially I equate um essentially i i mean they're not they don't perfectly overlap but they overlap well enough for me i essentially equate consciousness awareness and uh working memory i know that you don't like the working memory bit but like what it means is you know because working memory is supposed to be composed of some pieces as well supposed to be composed of attention which i sometimes like label as the same thing as awareness anyway it's supposed to be composed of attention um, short, uh, short-term memory, which is actually actual, the actual memory bit of like, you know, remembering whatever you're currently aware of. Um, so you can like, and, and, and then, uh, so yeah, sorry. So like attention, short-term memory, and then there's like, I forgot the name for this, but like something that can manipulate this information, which is kind of how you can combine new thoughts together and stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I think of as in ter- like more or less practically as I think of what consciousness is. I also think of it as something which is taking inputs from um, kind of the, the outside. It doesn't directly take inputs from the outside, but just filtered through percep- perception and and any interpretation that happens through uh, through the computer. Then then that that perception then enters into consciousness along with um any like butlers mm-hmm. right so, then that those are like inputs into it so so and i i think this might be where also our interests are slightly diverging because i think for the for the purpose of learning having mm-hmm. that equation works almost perfectly like that's mm-hmm. where that's where i think the learning inquiry can stop because you're trying to teach new things and whether whether awareness is thinking or whatever it like who gives a shit it works yeah Um, yeah yeah, yeah. so so i think it it is like that yeah but but and i think with that it's it's actually a very um powerful model for me i think there is more needed because what I'm in, what I'm interested in is is not so much learning, but more the transformation, and mm-hmm. then actually, whether it's thinking or there is something that goes beyond thinking has huge implications, because um, because it allows me completely different ways of working with myself and with people, if if there is this bigger thing. So could you uh, describe? your perspective on the difference between large amounts of learning and transformation. So I'm, I'm sure certain kinds of large amounts of learning don't look like transformation, but I think it's possible to imagine large amounts of learning that would look like a transformation. Um, and, 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 I, and I think that large amounts of learning, so additions to the adaptive unconscious, is one form of transformation. And I actually okay. think it's an important one. Absolutely. 
I also see a fundamentally different one, which is where people have this experience of what I call self. Through that, the way they relate to the butlers, the way they relate to the chimp shifts, even if it's just for five minutes. But often that shift has such a profound impact where suddenly they have a space inside them that wasn't there before, where the butlers still come up, but they have a completely new space of holding them. And through that, mm. their impact is marginalized. The chimp still gets activated, but they have so much more space to be with it that they can interact with it differently. Mm. So for me, there is, there is a real, and this would be another question that we, I think, can potentially look into. Um, I think there is a way in which the, the, the human or the self can unfold that changes the game that's being played, at least to some degree. Mm. It's like, how, how, how powerful is your human? And I, and I think there are levels of presence that are differing. Mm. I mean, a, you know, you, the, I could attempt a, a sort of chimp model interpretation of the thing you just described as well, two different potential interpretations. One is um, that you know that there's essentially like a new a new butler that says something like, "Watch out! Everything else is a butler." <laughs> mm -hmm. Right? It's a kind of meta butler, but like it is just a, essentially at at base, it is a butler that is talking about the other butlers. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one potential interpretation of it. Another one, which I think is more far-fetched, but also conceivable, is if you think of, if you talk about long-term memory as being composed of schemas, schemas being like clusters of, of information that, and clusters of uh, um, information or, or sort of skills, activities that, that make sense, that form a whole, then it might be that at sort of another level, you can like, you can that these these schemas are joined together into kind of super clusters right and that um sense making is on the one hand sense making is is at the level of the schema and on the other level it's at the level of like the super schema right and then i imagine that these sort of super schemas are, are this kind of super cluster is, is less well interconnected than the individual schemas individual schemas i imagine to be like really really heavily stuck together as a single piece. Whereas a supercluster I, I kind of imagine as being like more weakly connected. And then if you find a new way of connecting your schemas together, um, it could be really, it could be really insightful. Basically what, it, what I'm saying, to try and provide an example, it would be, or to try and be slightly more concrete, it would be like, imagine you have like 20 memories or a hundred memories or whatever, right? Each memory is its own tiny little schema, something like that, right? And then you, you, you combine these schemas into sort of super schemas of like a story of your life. And then maybe you, you can recombine these schemas into a different super schema, which is a different story of your life. And maybe that's like easier to do than like actually individually changing these memories. And, and I, and I, I, mean I, that, <laughs> I, I, I get that. 
And <clears throat> the experience I have and the experience that clients also describe is it's not about the shift of story. It's not about the, there, there is something more fundamental happening. Mm. And it's, it's so, um, um, here, is, here is an example, which is a story. So I have mm -hmm. two points. Um, let's look at an expert, like an expert chess player. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think it connects to flow, but there will mm -hmm. be days where an expert chess player is in, in a great internal state and they're in flow and things come easy and all of that. And there will be days where it's not. And it might not even have anything to do with the chimp because the chimp might be quiet on both days because mm. they're kind of in a field they know. But mm. on one day there is like, there is, they're in the zone. There is the flow. There is all of that. What's different on that day? That would be the question. And just as, just to tell a story, there is a, there is a famous story by a, by a pretty um, incredible dude who, who's very much explored consciousness as consciousness. And he describes his first, what he calls an, as an enlightenment experience. And I've never had an enlightenment experience as he describes it. I've had smaller ones, I would say, even though I hate the word enlightenment experience, it's for me, it's a shift in consciousness. Um, mm -hmm. But the way he describes it, which is a lot more uh, impactful than what, uh, whatever I've experienced, is um, he, was a, he was a martial artist before a very good martial artist. He had this experience. It doesn't even matter what he describes this experience as, but there was a sense of after that, um, number one, for a couple of days, such a thing as a sense of identity, sense of self didn't exist for him. He, he just was, he mm. was present. He was there, but he describes his martial arts afterwards as, as if veils of, what was previously there had been lifted and he was just perceiving the other people a lot more. And he got a deeper sense of, he could, and he, this is an interesting description, but he could feel and sense their intention. So even before they moved, he was aware of what they were gonna do because he could sense their intention because there was an openness to something that wasn't there before. Was he doing Tai Chi? Well, he was doing all sorts of shit, but he won okay. the, I think the world champion, the full contact world championship in 1971. So he was very much uh, hitting people in the face with his fists. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> um, but it's, it's that shift that where, where something fundamentally shifts and opens. And that can deeply impact how we are with ourselves. And I would put that as consciousness, but I wouldn't put it as conscious thought. Mm. And I think for learning, for most types of learning, that doesn't matter. But I think mm. for other things, it really does. 
I mean, I, I do get the um, impression that as people become, you know, obviously, because I'm looking more at expertise rather than at like personal transformation, although in some cases, one leads to the other. But they overlap. Um, they overlap and, and they overlap. Yeah. Uh, but in, in some cases, people who uh, gain high levels of expertise or it's quite common for people who have high levels of expertise to speak in uh, speak in a particular kind of language about what they do. And it's often uh, a language, sometimes it's a language with like almost mystical tone. And it's often a language which talks about whatever they're doing as an art. And it doesn't matter how much other people think it's an art. It can be something that looks very little like an art, but to them it's an art. Um, martial arts are partly this way. So like I did an episode on the podcast with Bruce Lee. You're not with Bruce Lee, like obviously, right? <laughs> yeah, Bruce Lee. No, but like about, about Bruce Lee, about Bruce Lee. Anyway, he, he did an interview and um, uh, I water. talked about because I listened. Sorry? Be water, my friend. <laughs> he, I think, I think he did actually say that thing in the interview. Anyway, but um, he, uh, I, I listened to that interview twice. Like first time, I was like, I don't know what, what he's on about. Second time, I listened to him like a year or so later, and I realised that I did understand what he was talking about, and it, I could relate it basically to uh, the conscious and unconscious idea, which is something that I was developing much more before I started putting terms like working memory and long term memory to it. Because I was looking at things like flow, I was looking at things like um, blink, uh, I was looking at things like uh, lots of stuff about expertise and about experts before I managed to get around to looking at the cognitive science of working in long-term memory. So I already had these ideas of conscious and unconsciousness and certain phenomenology stuff around that as well. Um, and and also, you know, thinking fast and slow has this self one, self two distinction as well. So. Um, uh, yeah, looking at the level of consciousness and unconsciousness, that really looked like what he was talking about so much at the time. He was talking about, he said so much stuff, it made no sense when I first heard it. He was like, um, you need, if, if you, you know, you need, you need a balance. Uh, you can't be too, you know, if, if you have no, I can't remember what word he used, but if he said something like, if you have no discipline, then um, you are wild and uncontrolled. But if you have too much discipline, you become the mechanical man. So you actually need both. Um, and he, he said, he, he calls it fighting, not fighting, or not fighting, fighting. <clears throat> and I, I, I recognize this as um, basically like, like in flow, your, your conscious and unconsciousness are sort of like in a kind of harmony where they're both, they're both being used uh, in a way which is pleasant and fully absorbing. And like, you can think of it as like um, your your, I suppose let's call it, we've got so many words for this now, subconscious or adaptive unconscious or, or your computer or whatever, but that, that providing um, interpretation and, uh, and suggestions and automatic uh, processing in, in places. And then your, your human or your working memory or whatever, <clears throat> or your consciousness or whatever, uh, providing the um, higher level guidance and the and deciding on uh between differing interpretations where they're offered where both are offered and um and providing maximal attention and awareness in the moment and stuff so like both of these things playing together and 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 to me like 
it really seemed like the wild thing he was talking about was really the the consciousness and the discipline thing was the was the computer part because that's like the stuff you've already got trained the basics and then you've got to be able to like shift and and be improvise on on the basis of that and what i think that would be one perspective couldn't he also be talking about especially in fighting that the wild is actually the chimp when it gets aggressive uh well i mean that's possible, but he also talks about acting the same way. I mean, maybe he talked about acting and he meant it that way as well. I have no idea. He I haven't to... heard the, the interview, so... Yeah. Um, but yeah, another thing he, he talks about in the interview is he, he talks about... Um, five minutes. How... Five more minutes. Okay, he took, sure. He talks about how, um, how the whole point of martial arts is to express yourself. And I was like, what the hell are you on about? Well, the whole point of martial arts is to beat people up or, <laughs> or to not get beaten up like how, or, or to be physically fit if you're not going to beat if you're not going to fight people so like you, you know or something you know or to reach some sort of meditative state how is it to express yourself I, I don't understand that at all but then this is something that seems to come across with with anyone with a lot of people who have a very high level of expertise in something in some performance in particular there, there this is common among mathematicians describe maths as an art so it, it seems to me there's something about being like really, once you're at a really high level, it seems that a lot of people start saying stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the question would be, are they, are they still in the same mode of adaptive unconscious and conscious thinking? Or has it that also what might have been conscious thinking at the beginning has shifted into like a deeper mode of being conscious? for instance that that would be one of the ways i would look at it because i think those shifts are real and it's maybe they're they they what from the outside looks like thinking is still on one level thinking but there's also more because that's that's one of the things that i think is a potential and i don't think we're going to figure it out today but i like the thoughts and the the comparison mm-hmm. of these models Mm. Um, because I have three more minutes left, I came uh-huh. up with a really simple t- drawing while we were uh-huh. talking as a, maybe as a jumping off point for more, which is we have the adaptive unconscious and we have the bottleneck of the chimp that is kind of like our nervous system where mm-hmm. everything has to go through it and it can go through it in the sense of our nervous systems like everything's okay i'm safe and things come to the consciousness or it gets like channeled through no you gotta fight you gotta flee or freeze and and it kind of ends in the consciousness mostly through that so that it that kind of the chimp is this bottleneck and if there is nothing in the adaptive unconscious it has to improvise but that it's, it's this how information is also coming through the body is to a large degree determined by this nervous system, by this chimp. That was just an idea of maybe having a visual that we can try to continue working on. So Steve Peters talks about the chimp being active or going to sleep. And this depending on how much it's recently been active. 
And I would say because Steve Peters, for Steve Peters, he uses only fight, flight or, free, or freeze. So he uses this part of the nervous system. And actually, mm. um, going to sleep, I think, would be that we're in social engagement. Mm. What, what about if you're not doing something social at that moment? Social engagement means just you're, you're in a state where you're aware of yourself, you're sensing your body, your body is telling yourself, I'm safe here. Um, mm. That would be what social engagement basically is. So it can also be self-connection, kind of connected to me. Okay. Just as an idea of having some sort of visual representation that maybe tells a more complete story than having kind of three uh, separated things, but they're actually integrated. Don't know if it makes sense to you. I was trying to find something. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I'd have to see ways in which uh, it would be an improvement over the other diagram. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, at, at the moment, um, you know, it differs from the other diagram mainly in that you can't go without moving through the chimp. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, I, we don't I suppose. Have yeah, it's it's today. a polyvagal theory way of thinking about. It, I guess. Yeah, I haven't I haven't done much about polyvagal theory myself. Yeah. So maybe this far for today. Just. Mm-hmm.